Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Content Lab Podcast, where you join us for an inside look at content marketing, content management, and really just all things content, with a focus on the nuts and bolts, the ins and outs, the tips and tricks, the highways and byways, and considering it's October, the balls and strikes of content creation. This is the second show with our new format where I, John Becker, have joined the intrepid and brilliant Liz Murphy as co-host. And I'm up here in New England where we are approaching our first frost. It's usually October 15th, but it did not happen today, but it's always right around now. But the leaves are brilliantly colored and somehow we are halfway through October already. Liz, how are you doing? Um, Okay, I'm equal parts shamed and ecstatic. Uh, shamed because for your first intro of the show, that was so eloquently articulated. And I think last week I said something along the lines of content lab is where we talk about how the content sausage gets made, which is a little less uh, finessed <laughs> than your description, but I'm going to lean into it. I'm okay with it. Well, Every show needs a balance. Where the content sausage gets made is an unforgettable image. So that one stuck. It's also kind of a gross image too. It's kind of gross. It's kind of gross. But the ecstatic part of me, as you mentioned, it is October, which means it's the postseason of baseball. And I know we already talked about this, but I just have to go on record with this one moment of joy, even though I'm very aware that everything could go horribly wrong as early as this evening. I must capture that the Washington Nationals are potentially one game away from going to the World Series, which would be a franchise first. In fact, Washington hasn't hosted a World Series since 1933 when our team was the Washington Senators. And my Mm -hmm. grandfather, Vito Peruso, miss you every day, uh, would go watch them. Uh, Of course, in true fashion, we lost that series as well. (laughs) But, you know, that's... That's what At least we do you in Washington. There. We lose. Except for last night. We are one game away from sweeping the St. Louis Cardinals, and I'm just so happy, but also happy to talk about content. I am running on lots of coffee and lots of enthusiasm. And John, I, I feel bad for you because this week you are in the hot seat. Hot seat. Of, yep, hot seat. Sizzle, sizzle. Instead of, uh, instead of myself. Um, so get ready for a caffeinated barrage of questions, because this week we're talking about something that if you are the owner of content at your company, whether you're a digital marketing manager who is in charge of publishing all of your content, a content manager who owns all of the content production and strategy for your company, or just someone who your boss one day said, hey, you're good at writing, can you take a look at this before we publish it? what you do when you get a bad draft from somebody, not like drafts where it needs a little tweaking drafts where you need to like, if it were a table, you'd have to shake it and flip everything over in order to make things work. And you need to do that without crushing their spirits, keeping them engaged in the process and not just coming across as a red pen wielding monster. Because, and, and the reason why this is so important is that if you're a content manager or a digital marketing manager, you don't think about it, but one of the most important things that you do is manage the relationships within your company and people have to like you. 
They have to like you. And John, the reason why I want to interview you about this topic is because you are like a little editorial ninja. Nobody has anything bad to say about you. In fact, when you take apart people's drafts, they then independently come to me and say things like, oh my gosh, I just love working with John. He like <laughs> transformed my writing. And I just, I, I want us to dive in today. How do you do that? How do you take things apart and put them back together and make the people whose work you're taking apart not only like you, but be enthusiastic about being part of that process? Well, one of the first things you said to me really resonates, which is you have to have some sort of relationship with the person you're working with in order for this process to go well. And I know that can be hard if you're starting out in this role or if you're working with someone for the first time and you don't really know them. Um, but I would say whatever you can do to sort of build rapport beforehand um, goes a long way in getting the person you're working with to be receptive to whatever sort of feedback you give. So that's first. Um, and connected with that, I think it's important to remember that it is really hard to accept critique and evaluation. A lot of people see writing inherently as a vulnerable process where they are not confident or uncomfortable. Um, and for, for anyone doing anything, you all know that when you, you know, if you were to get some like an evaluation at work, if it's 95% positive and, and one sort of suggestion, you tend to sort of focus on that. It's hard to be critiqued, even by people we like, people we respect, people we know well. So keeping that in your mind as an editor, realizing that it's not easy to be on the other end of this, um, and connected with that, I think as we, uh, as we are writers, it's always important to have other people look at our drafts and you know we too struggle with organizing and pacing and um, you know we make small errors as well. So it's always important to realize that the shoe can be on the other foot. You know what's interesting about that though, and this is something I remember struggling with a bit when I first started out as a, as a content manager, effusive as my personality may sometimes seem to be, I am happiest at home under earphones with my dogs and cat who do not understand English. They just accept all of my, my missives and declarations as fact. But there are a lot of people who, because of their skill set and, and their background, they don't necessarily want, they want to spend more time writing and working as opposed to building rapport. So what are some things that you do that you would recommend people in these positions do to build rapport? Because you can't, you know, walk up and be like, hello, fellow kids, you know, and just let's, let's talk at the water cooler. Like how, what are the things that you do to build rapport within the organization? So by the time you get to the draft, that relationship is already in place. I think that's difficult to say because there are so many ways to do it. I, I think I, ideally, if you're in this role, you're a friendly outgoing person who, you know, how do you make friends with anyone? You, you have common interests, you talk to them, you ask them questions about themselves, you, you know, share memes and make jokes and all the things that make you seem like you're not just, as you said before, a red pen wielding monster who wants to, you know, crush their spirit and tell them that their writing is terrible. So I think there are any number of ways to be close with people in your office. It's harder in, um, you know, at, at Impact, we have a lot of remote employees. Uh, Liz, you're remote. So it can be harder sometimes if those interactions aren't face-to-face. -face. Um, but 
you know, what I would do normally if I, if I know someone has a draft coming up, I would send them a Slack, uh, you know, maybe a week out, maybe with some kind of joke into it, in it, or some kind of like, hey, let, let me know if I can help in any way. Love to talk drafts or outlines or anything else, just to kind of start a conversation. But then I feel like once you're actually in the draft, there are lots of ways to build rapport there too. Okay, so that's what I find really fascinating is you you view the draft, if I'm not mistaken, as another opportunity to solidify the relationship, not just an editorial transaction. Okay. Absolutely. I think that's essential. So how do you do that? Like, let's say, well-meaning Liz Murphy wrote an article about creating a digital marketing strategy. And you know what? I'm there with the enthusiasm, but the execution is flawed. What do you do? So I think there are a couple of things and, and I want to back up first. And I think as much as you or your department or, or team can establish some sort of process where your editorial, um, you know, what you're focusing on as an editor is not absolutely everything at once. So if you can begin by looking, say, only at structure, maybe that's in like an outline form or something, if, if you require outlines, however you do it um, is sort of up to you. But if you're just focused on structure, then you don't need to, uh, you know, laboriously copy edit um, a section that you might end up cutting uh, entirely. Um, and so I, I think trying to make the feedback process, the editorial process, um, make it composed of multiple steps allows you uh, to not be like, this whole section is terrible and you forgot to dot your eye. You know, like it, it, it sort of allows you to um, differentiate and, and dichotomize the way that you respond to the work. So that's kind of like a, a, a background. But in my mind, what I do whenever I'm in a Google Doc is I try to just have a conversation with the writer. Um, so I, I rarely, unless it's something small, um, and unless there's a, a deadline that's really coming quickly, I rarely will correct things for the writer. You know, if it's something small, sure. If it's like adding a, you know, a comma, something like that. But typically, I'll, it'll, it will be all comments in the side of the Google Doc. Uh, how about this? Or I was a little bit confused here. Or um, maybe move this up. And I always tend to preface whatever I'm saying with maybe, or I'm not sure, or um, you know, I thought this, uh, which allows me to be sort of like just another reader, not necessarily this arbiter of excellence who's there to like wield the sword and, and pass judgment. Interesting. And I know that you, you told me about this, that you have a term for it that you use that I just was like ah, this needs to be on shirts and everything. <laughs> the term is not mine. I don't know who came up with it, um, but there's a, a poem by Billy Collins called Marginalia, which is all about the sort of, especially reading secondhand books and encountering the commentary that's like written in pen and pencil or things that are circled in the side from previous people who have, um, uh, you know, previous people who have read the book. And he has this, the closing image is him as like a, ninth grader um the summer before freshman year reading um the catcher in the rye and like he's like in love with the girl who had read it before him and she's like writing these notes in soft pencil and 
um, it's, it's awesome. So marginalia. And, you know, I tend to do that all the time, you know, like I, I'll, I'll drop in a link or like, oh yeah, this reminds me of this. Or did you know this? Or check out this video. It makes me, uh, you know, this makes me laugh if it's something related to um, whatever they're talking about. And so what occupies the side is, is a dialogue and a conversation, not a litany of corrections and, you know, my will imposed on them. So how do you walk that line though? Because I could see very easily on the one hand, how critical marginalia is to building that relationship with the person and allowing them to self-discover and not have their soul crushed during the editorial process. But how do you keep that from devolving into quite frankly, equivocation where you're being so wishy-washy. And so like, well, maybe if you could just, you know, like, could you do this? And how do you make sure that the editorial process still moves along efficiently if you're dealing with large issues like structural problems or pervasive errors or, or issues that we sometimes see here where it's like, this isn't researched enough, you know, what, where, where is the linking and sourcing to this? Because at the same time, while you want to be uplifting your content creators, you want them to feel energized and a part of the process. At the end of the day, our goal is to make high quality, useful content that builds trust with our audience. So we're the most trusted voice in our space. And quite frankly, that is a universal goal that any digital marketing organization should have. So how do you ensure that that happens? I think a couple things. Um, in my mind, the, the marginalia that goes down the side is a reminder um, to both of us that I am a person and the writer is a person and that the, we are both focused on making the document that's to the left the best it can be. Um, the conversation exists to allow us to humanize that process. Um, but I, I think by the the precision and the detail with which we approach editor, editorial work, I think we demonstrate the fact that we have high standards. And I think if we allow that the process to play out over a few rounds, um, we allow ourselves to be able to say, mm, "Yeah, this still isn't right. There. This still isn't there." Um, you know. So I, I think my if we have plenty of time and if we are moving along in a, a clip that is efficient, um, I think my suggestions become more like directives and imperatives the further we get. So, you know, maybe a first draft, I might say something like, uh, you know, not sure about this, this transition. Um, you know, they might rewrite it and it might still be clunky or it might still be a place where I stumble. You know, maybe in a second draft, I might, you know, push that a little bit further and say, try this, or maybe consider adding a sentence that starts in other words, or something that becomes a little bit more pointed in my, in my suggestion. So I think anything that I'm talking about um, is operating under the, the general principle that quality takes time. And that if you build a process properly, you have the time to make these sorts of um, revisions conversational and collaborative in nature. Do you ever find a time where there are drafts where you look at it and go, there's too much really to discuss in the margins. This needs to be a conversation. Yeah, sometimes. Um, and if it's someone that I work with directly in office, I'll try to have that conversation face to face. 
Um, and sometimes I will, uh, if that person is not in the office, I'll record a, a Go video, just like a, a short one-to-one -one video of, um, you know, maybe more uh, conceptual ideas about, um, you know, thoughts that they can't be conveyed or would be less efficient if they were conveyed on the mm -hmm. draft. Interesting. So how do you manage those conversations? Because it could very easily, you know, it's kind of like when Marcus Sheridan, who's one of our partners at the company, <laughs> will come up and if I get an email or a conversation starts with, hey, bud, you know, he's <laughs> either going to, I'm either about to have a teachable moment or he's about to like lay something really big and scary at my feet. So how do you make those conversations? How do you manage those? So it's not just this when people see John coming around the corner. <laughs> well, I, I think it has to be um, actionable. You know, like going and giving feedback that says, um, you know, this is, this is terrible. Start over, you know, is, is not useful at all. And Liz, you'll laugh at this, but there is that sort of old teaching technique of the praise sandwich, you know, that you, but, but it really has some value that you start with saying, something that's good about it and it doesn't have to necessarily be this formal but it's like a little praise goes a long way and i remember i was editing something for a, a colleague months ago you know three or four months ago and um I, I think she was accustomed to edits always being negative you know like because as editors we only have so much time so we're just trying to correct things get through drafts get them back you know, get them out of our inbox and into someone else's inbox. And, um, you know, like I gave her a few little, you know, small comments in the, in the margins, like, Oh, love this or great example, something like, you know, those like, and it was literally that small and that insignificant. And she still to this day, you know, will, will sort of say, well, it was just, you know, so affirming when John thought I was a good writer and, you know, those sorts of things, like, like the little bit of, of positivity, goes so far, it goes back to what we were talking about with building rapport. Um, but in any draft, there is something that you can, um, you can praise. You know, maybe it's, it's uh, you know, it's detailed, maybe even if it's, it's spastic and, and all over the place, you know, there's lots of energy here. And I know that feels a little bit euphemistic, but it does allow us to acknowledge the work that the writer put in. You know, and I think that that's something else I was going to say today that, you know, I think we have to give our writers the benefit of the doubt. We have to assume that they're trying, that they put themselves into it, um, acknowledge work. Our writers, um, you know, have busy lives and work doing lots of different things. And I think it's important and it's really beholden to us that we acknowledge that work and move forward from a place of shared um, appreciation of what they've already put in. And then from there, you know, you get to know the writers that you work with. But I think giving, you know, I know that certain writers are going to respond better to different feedback than others might. And so, um, you know, for, for one writer who might be, you know, maybe more comfortable, it's, it's easy to say, hey, I want you to really push this, like, like push into this, go further here and really develop this further. And that might be a challenge and a, you know, a, a directive that they can really take and run. Um, run with and i think you know maybe for a writer who's less confident that specific or that feedback needs to be a little bit more specific and a little bit more actionable and a little bit more targeted to you know right here um you know add another uh you know add another example so this feels a little bit more substantial 
or your conclusion feels too abrupt. Think about what else, what other questions might be lingering in your, um, in your audience's mind. And if they can't do that, maybe ask the questions yourself. Mm -hmm. So you bring up an interesting point there, however, because we've, we've spent a good portion of this conversation talking about how a lot of people are very nervous in these situations to open themselves up to criticism when it comes to writing. Writing is a vulnerable pursuit. It's something that people, A, it feels like homework, and B, for a lot of people, it's not their native way of, of, of creation or, or of ideation, especially when it has to be editorially sound. But there are those cases, however, where we give them the benefit of the doubt that they're really trying, but what about those scenarios where someone isn't trying? Like, and, and how do you tell? <laughs> like, I, 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 know, I know I'm kicking over the rock we're not supposed to kick over. We want to all pretend that our, our people are very excited to be doing this, but sometimes people phone it in and you can tell. Yes, but I think you can only tell once you've seen other writing from them. You know, like when you're getting to know any writer, the first piece that you see is starts to establish a baseline. Um, and if you are, you know, if their first piece is phoned in, then maybe, you know, then, then it's a little bit harder to tell. But, um, you know, I think once you, once you sort of know them, uh, you know, I was laughing before because there's that old sort of parentism of, you know, I'm not upset, I'm just disappointed. You know, and I think there's a little bit of, a little bit of that, like, um, when I've looked at drafts that I, I could tell, you know, this is, this is a rush job or, or maybe it's even late or, or something like that. Um, I think the writer knows, and I think, um, you know, the writer knows that I know, and I know that the writer knows that I know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there is that sort of awareness, like we all know we're not working with your best, uh, you know, your, your. Um, Mona Lisa here. So let's be like, you know, I think sometimes a little, a little note like, oh, did, uh, did anyone else look at this draft yet? Or, um, you know, uh, I, I worked with a, a, a colleague recently who was writing his first piece and it was uh, about 600 words and it's supposed to be at least a thousand words. And so um, without trying to shame or anything like that, I just tried to, you know, send him our, our playbooks, go over some expectations and assume that, yeah, he probably dropped the ball on this a little bit, but I'm still going to give it my full attention because it's going to go up on our website. It's going to represent our company. So it's got to be good. Gotcha. So if you could give one piece of advice to fledgling content managers or digital marketing managers, who are either new to create to having to edit drafts that may not be where they were hoping <laughs> quality wise, what would it be? Just like a doctor, you need your sort of bedside manner. And I think we are bringing our expertise to any draft that is in front of us. And we bring with us our skills and our abilities to make that the best it can be. So we've done this before. They might not have done this as much as, um, as we have, but you have to kind of bring your humanity to help coach them through this process. You are working together on a piece of writing that will go up on your website that will represent your company. It's important to remember that there are lots of different ways but it's about working together to produce the best content 
possible. And quality takes time. And quality takes attention to detail. And you have to bring your full self and your best self and your sort of growth-minded self to the process or it will fall apart. Be a human. More specifically, be a good human. (laughs) Well, great. center this week yes teach us liz teach us and by learning center i mean learning corner but that's fine my my lack of ability to remember words is you know inconsequential to my job (laughs) someone who manages words it's fine but today i'm really excited the the learning corner i have for all of you this week is something that very simple that trips people up all the time and that's when you use ie versus e.g. in a sentence. I see them often confused, and I'm just going to make this really, really simple for you. I.E. and E.G. both stand for Latin phrases that I could tell you right now, but you won't remember them. But here is what you need to know. I.E. essentially stands for in other words. So one of my favorite examples of the correct use of I.E. actually comes from a comic called The Oatmeal that I will link in the show notes. Eating a squirrel taco without any ranch dressing is like playing leapfrog with a unicorn, i.e. a very bad idea. So you don't use it when you're trying to say, for example. For example is when you use e.g. So if we were to use a less uh, eccentric example (laughs) of how to do that, it would be something like, we recommend to show the ROI of your content marketing efforts, you use a marketing automation software, e.g. HubSpot, Marketo, Pardot. So just to recap, IE means in other words, EG means for example. And that's it. That's your learning corner for this week. All the time. (laughs) <laughs> All the time, people uh, confuse those and, oh, yeah. and misuse those. So thank you for clearing that up, Liz. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up our show today, I am doing the what I'm reading corner. Corner? Corner. Um, so in answer to or in response to Liz's from last week, I too love The New Yorker, the humor section, and pretty much all of it. I have just never found that I can keep up with it. At various times in my life, I have said, okay, I'm going to subscribe to The New Yorker. I'm going to read it cover to cover each week. No, I can't. It's too good. There's too much stuff in it. It is impossible. Um, I wish there were something like a half subscription model. You could get it every two weeks or something. I just, I just can't do it. So that frustration led me to Harper's, uh, which I also love. Um, when I started reading Harper's, there was uh, Lewis Latham was the editor in chief. I think he stepped down in 2006, um, and he founded this amazing, interesting, eclectic, strange publication called Latham's Quarterly, and it is absolutely gorgeous, uh, thick, oh, wow. wonderful, um, and it's full of. Uh, it's organized around big, uh, complex topics like music or war or happiness. Um, And you can buy them 
on eBay, uh, you know, and buy them even in bulk. Um, but I've been reading recently the night issue and it, among other things, there are, you know, there's an account, a first person account of the 1977 New York blackout. There's a psychologist writing about the effects of lack of sleep. There's a map overlaying the well-known Western constellation with those from other cultures, like uh, in Persia, Cassiopeia was the camel hump. And in um, Inuit culture, the Gemini, the twins were the igloo entrance. Um, there's an account of how LBJ kept having this recurring nightmare of him trying to swim across a river and he couldn't reach the other side. Um, and that led to him not seeking the Democratic nomination for the 1968 election. Um, there's an account of like sleepwalking crimes and everything. But I was Whoa. reading for today uh, this compiled list called From Dusk to Dawn about varying statistics of what's happening at varying points in our lives, including the percentage of Americans who are asleep at any hour. But uh, germane to our uh, digital world, um, at 5 a.m. each day, the Google searches for recipes peak. At 7.30 p.m., the Google searches for pet adoption peak. At 8 p.m., Facebook posts are most likely to garner likes. At 9 p.m., the highest daily number of users are logged into Tinder. At 10 p.m. is the highest number of emotionally charged tweets posted. At 1.30 a.m., Google searches for um, both drugs and alcohol peak. At 3.30 a.m., Google searches for panic, lonely, and bored peak. And at 8 a.m., the highest number of positive tweets are posted. So that's when people want to adopt pets. That's when people want to, uh, you know. That's so recipes, cool. Et cetera. Um, oh, that's really neat. So how is it pronounced? Latham's Quarterly? Latham's Quarterly. Okay. It, now, for those listening at home, it's it's spelled Lapham. <laughs> yeah, so the F is a, is a quarterly. And we will link it in the show notes. Um, yeah. But you can find it. Uh, you, can, you can subscribe if you want to, but you can find the issues um, back order on eBay pretty easily. Just don't outbid me. Uh, and they are worth every penny. That's amazing. Yeah, I was taking a look here. It looks like so it's four issues a year for $50, which saves you 36% off the newsstand price. And you can learn about it at... Lapham, I'm just <laughs> laphamsquarterly.org. Uh, that is so cool. Well, You'd I guess that it. brings us to the end of our episode. How exciting. Um, well, thank you all for listening, and we look forward to talking to you all next week here on Content Lab. Bye. Bye bye.